John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1393.EP0423, certificate number 30972, vice versa. You're not letting me have any fun, and I'm sick of it. You're always pushing me around and telling me what to do. How come nobody ever gets to tell you what to do? Will you tell me that? Honestly, Bill, that child has not got a clue about my life. Sounds like a picnic to me. I, I wish I could, could switch places with her for just, just one day. So if I say to you, body swap comedies, Ooh. do you understand? Whoa, you've got, you've got a deep and visceral reaction. <laughs> well, I, I mean. What was that, disgust? You're turned on? I don't know. My first body swap comedy. So you do understand what I mean, this term of art. Well, the, the it was the 1970, what would it have been? 1976 Six? comedy, Freaky Friday. That's also my body swap, Jerry, right there. Yeah, and I I was front and center for Freaky Friday and a big fan of it and- so you've told the future before, uh, your love for mid-1970s tomboy child stars. <sighs> tomboy child stars of the 1970s. I don't that know. That coffee table book you still own. <laughs> oh, that's a coffee table book I should write. Chapter one, Christy McNichol. <laughs> Chapter two, Tatum O'Neill. You know, I was kind of dismayed when Freaky Friday was remade, except I also thought Lindsay Lohan was great. Well, you're one for two then, because Jodie Foster did turn out to be a fine woman, talented uh, director and activist. Yeah, too bad. Lindsay Lohan, not yet. Too bad about Still Lindsay Still got Lohan. time to turn it around, I guess, if three ghosts come or if Jodie Foster body swaps into her body. But I was, I was a big Jodie Foster fan. Not, not, I hadn't seen Taxi Driver, <laughs> but she was in so many, you know, she was in Candle Shoe and she was in... Um, is she in uh, Bugsy, Bugsy Malone? Malone. Yeah. She was a big, big part of Bugsy Malone, which meant a lot to me. So anyway, I was. I feel like I may not have seen Jodie Foster between Freaky Friday and Silence of the Lambs. Is that possible? Uh, I can't, like what are the eighties Jodie Foster movies that I would. Huh. Uh, Little Man Tate. I, I may, guess that came You know, later. I may have seen Little Man Tate Little actually. Man Tate. Oh, I think you're right. But I never saw The Accused. That's not a kid's movie. No. I never saw the 
Chickapay, uh, what's that movie called? Nell? Chickapay? But that's after. <laughs> what? You know, she, she speaks some made up language from Pogo comics or something. Oh, I don't. Definitely did not see that. She's raised by possums in the bayou, and so she speaks possum language. Oh, I see. Possum language. And so they come to get her, I don't know, Liam Neeson or Gabriel Byrne, whatever early 90s leading man it is, comes to get her, and she's all like, Chickapay, Codesau. Well, so foxes... I was 12 when Foxes came out and saw it. It was sophisticated. What is Foxes? Some Jodie Foster? It's like a, a 1970s coming of age tomboy girl falls in love with Scott Bayo, I think. Isn't Scott Bayo in Scott Bugsy Bayo's Malone? Scott Bayo Malone, yeah. The two of Do you them. think that was in her writer? Like, I will always agree with Scott Bayo politically and in every other way. I insist <sighs> that he be in all my movies. When you think about the career arc of those two, And just where they landed culturally, like Jodie Foster, sort of an Academy Award winning, important actress. Went to Yale. I don't don't know if Scott Baio went to an Ivy. I don't think he did. Scott Baio kind of lands over here. But you know, they did a few films together. So do you think Jodie loves Chachi? Uh, Where's my bell? I will will give you a ring for that. Probably not anymore. Uh, The Hotel New Hampshire in 1984 was also a kind of sex comedy. But then you're right. See, 80s kids were not going to The Accused or Hotel New Hampshire or whatever else her 80s output was. And Silence of the Lambs and Little Man Tate came out the same year. So she did. She had, well, she was at Yale that whole time. She was maybe not that whole time. For for 10 years. (laughs) She was was hiding in the basement of the fine arts building uh, with a can of beans over a fire. But that's why the Silence of the Lambs hit so hard because. It's Annabelle Andrews from Freaky Friday. Yeah. But now she's joined the FBI. Yeah, so in Freaky Friday. But uh, I also love Freaky Friday because that premise is so appealing to a kid that you get to be a grown-up, you get to inhabit your mother's body and go be like out in the world and not constrained. She uses her dad's credit card. Yeah, drive a car, like all these things that at least when you're eight, ten years old, I don't know, seemed like real liberation. And the real wish fulfillment is that if your parent were in your body, they would screw up. They don't know how hard you have it. Yeah. Like they wouldn't be able to deal with the hundred things you deal with on a typical school day. I know. I mean, it's total adolescent narcissism. Like how would they know how to, I'm sure mom would never be able to do my touch typing (laughs) class or whatever. (laughs) She couldn't operate a Walkman. Uh, there's a long tradition of, you, after Freaky Friday, and we should get into this at some point, there was yeah. a, in the eighties, there was an unaccountable tsunami of these gimmicky body swap movies in which two people, we say body swap, but that's a bit of a misnomer. It's usually a soul transference. Soul transference. One person's consciousness jumps abruptly into someone else's body and they assume correctly that a similar exchange has happened too. So, so well, this is a good question. Is it a body swap or a soul swap? What's in most cases we see a soul swap and we know that because the person's body remains where it was in Freaky Friday, 1976, Jodie Foster is sitting with her friend played by future Dallas star Charlene Tilton in some kind of a, they go to a diner before school and eat ice cream. I don't know why I have this very clear memory of how Freaky Friday starts, Mm -hmm. but suddenly Jodie Foster is sitting with her friend and she and her mom wish simultaneously. There's always some bizarre Supernatural. Not explained cosmic mechanism that creates the body swap. Uh, That's why you have to be careful because people are always listening. Yeah. And if someone wishes for the same thing at the same time as you, apparently the universe will arrange for that thing to happen. Okay. Uh, Okay. Omnibus listeners, 
oh, they're way in the future, so they, that we can't they do can't it. do anything at the same time. No, I'd be like, I, I want them to wish something with me, but this is, it can't work. They, it's not transferable to the past. Unless there is some kind of four-dimensional, unless all these wish fulfillments are being administered by higher dimensional beings who can see through all time and space. If you could wish for something weirdly supernatural like that, what would you wish for? Definitely not the body swap, because that often turns out to be more trouble than it's worth. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of comic hijinks ensue, lessons get learned. If you could be 13 again and live your life from 13 to the present over, would you? Alternate timeline, Ken. Yeah, maybe. Do I lose everything now, though? That is the premise of kind of a body swap adjacent movie with Zac Efron and Matthew Perry, I think, called 17 again. No, that's not the same premise. Two, two it's great more actors. Like, it's, it's, what, it's more like a Peggy Sue got married kind of thing. Oh, I Except see. Except that's your parents' generation. But then, it, but then you fly back to, to your normal state, right? You're always returned to the present. Yeah. But you correct. It's the, the back to the future thing where you go back in time, you solve a problem, and then your present it's always altered. implicit in these movies that everything is going to go back to normal, like it's an episode of a sitcom. Right. And that's because it does. So there's really not a whole lot of tension. A lot of these movies do have some kind of logistical subplot, like how are we going to get the antidote to the potion or yeah. whatever, you know, some imposed thing. And we all know it's going to go back to normal at the end, so we don't care. Or slightly better than normal. Yeah, because there'll be now intergenerational understanding. Right. I might go immortality if I if I was able to choose oh, some yeah. Deus Ex Machina kind of a cosmic gimmick. But what if? Uh, what about? You do see everyone you love die. Yeah. What about the nightmare of immortality? I feel like that's played up in the Twilight Zone. But like it's, it's not really a problem. No. You'd actually have a pretty good time. Think how many hours of TV <clears throat> you have waiting for you right now to watch, you know? like. But, but <laughs> have you thought through if you had immortality, like how you would sort of Highlander style, how sure. you would have to keep you your money and- Plus, you, yeah, you got to leave. You have to do the thing where you leave town right. and then come back with different facial hair, and you're like, "You remember my father, <laughs> Ken, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm also Ken somehow." And you have a you have a secretary that knows uh, your story, and her daughter always works for you, and and you have a, a keep somewhere with all of your jewels. It does kill all your relationships for sure. Yeah, I mean, imagine. But look, I'm doing that anyway. Yeah, I mean, being a man <laughs> is kind of the same as. <laughs> like watching everyone around you wither and get old while you're like, I don't know, this seems fine until a certain point. I feel like an incredible superpower would just be that you can't be hurt. And a lot of superheroes have that as an element of their superpower. Like emotionally hurt? No, just like, like, nobody, like nobody. Like what if that was part of the Superman mythos that like Lois is like, <laughs> Clark, you're always tripping and falling down. And he's like, I don't care. Yeah, what I'm, if? I'm not insulted by that at all. I'm very grounded. <laughs> Your opinion is valid, but it does not affect me. Can you imagine what a superhero you would be if you were just like, that's fine. I mean, say whatever you want. I'm, and you were genuinely not. <laughs> that's your superpower. <laughs> you're, you're basically a low-level sociopath, I guess. Yeah, that seems like the weirdest superpower. Can you imagine? There wouldn't, you know, Batman would just be like, I'm a rich guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not dressing up like a bat anymore. I'm fine. I'm fine. But you're talking about actual <clears throat> physical pain. You'd stub your toe and you'd be like, that feels actually good to well, me. Well, no, if you could walk into any situation and say, I'd like to put a stop to this bank robbery right now. And the bank robbers were like, die. And you were like, still going to try and put a stop to this bank robbery. Like it would be kind of incredible just to be able to go into situations and not suffer injury. 
I don't know when that would come up, though. You could intervene all the time in, in situations that normally you, you would say, like, uh, better leave that alone, or, oh, it's none of my business. You could just, you know, anytime somebody... Anytime what during your day would be different? I mean, yes, walking into a bank robbery, but that's yeah. literally never happened to me. I don't live in Gotham City. Um, but think about, I mean, there are so many situations in a day, starting from the first choice you make, where you avoid all kinds of scenarios because of a fear of getting hurt that you're not even conscious of all the things you avoid every day because you're afraid of getting hurt. I mean, I guess I could, uh, I could just step out of a moving car if I saw somebody yelling at his girlfriend in front of a club, right? Like, that kind of a thing. Well, yeah, but also like you don't, that would end the fight right there. If you just see some guy like <laughs> fall out of a car and roll over and hit the brick wall and then he gets up and he's like, Hey, is hey, this guy bothering you? <laughs> hey, why don't you be nicer to your girlfriend? Hey, Hey buddy. I think you're using <laughs> while some you're, swears. While you're dusting yourself off. <laughs> but uh, body swap is not one that anyone would choose. I no, think. I don't think I want to. And that's why it's a, a fictional trope, because you see these people who are like, what? They've apparently never seen any body swap comedies. Right. Because <laughs> none of them are like, oh, this is like a Freaky Friday thing. Well, what kid would ever say, I wish my mom could just be inside my body for a day. She'd that'd show her. The funny thing is it's a completely arbitrary device that we know will never happen. No scientific basis for it. I mean, the body swap comedy, the soul transference presumes some kind of Cartesian dualism. Right. Where your mind, your consciousness exists out with your body and it can just get mapped onto any other body with no difficulties, you know, like, uh, and well, that's a, that was very appealing in the 17th century, but I think today we know that your consciousness is it's, intrinsic it's encoded to your, in the nerves of your head. Right. And you couldn't just drop your consciousness into someone else's brain and they would be, you'd have to have to physically transplant the brain, which never happens in these movies. Nobody ever gets their head sawed off. But it feels, well, uh, no, that's true. But unless but, I'm missing some part of the, I never saw the Disney channel, Shelley Long, Gabby Hoffman. Oh, that was a head transplant. Did, did head they saw, transplant. Did yeah. they saw Shelley Long's head at some point? <laughs> yeah, they're both weirdly <laughs> stitched on with sewing thread. No, uh, but is that, I mean, it seems like it is kind of, written into reincarnation that your soul would in some form all cleansed of memory, but the same soul. Don't would, have the memory, but somehow you're you. Yeah. You're you and you would transfer from body to body. But in other, in other religious traditions, is there any instance where the. Well, I yeah. Mean, I mean, even if you don't believe in reincarnation, if you just believe that your spirit is going to survive your body. Right. I mean, that does somehow imply that. Uh, but it never it is. can lead. It's not transferable to. I mean, God at no point puts you in someone else. It's some book of Job-like scenario where God <laughs> and the devil are like, you know what would be funny? <laughs> Shelley Long is a very uptight executive and she does not get along with her daughter. Yeah, it's- So uh, the soul survives the body, but it there are only a few places it can go. It can go to heaven, right, it can it, go to it, purgatory, it, it, yes. it can go to hell. Yes. It can't just like wander the earth. But clearly it's not just an effect of how it feels to have a bunch of neurons firing because right. it can survive the neurons stopping. Right. Even in, in most Western religious traditions. Uh, in my tradition, Mormonism, the soul actually predates the body. Right. You know, we all lived before we came here as well. So clearly that's something that can come, get imposed on a head somehow, and then leave again. Well, and also you can, I mean, you're in the after world, you are affected by things that are happening on earth still, right? I mean, you can be baptized retroactively. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like, so there's a yes, lot of- Yes, or, you know, if you're Patrick Swayze's ghost, you can move a penny. 
right? Or if you're, uh, well, no, I guess that's interdimensional. I was going to talk about the one where he moves a book on a bookshelf to communicate with his daughter through <laughs> you, a tesseract. You love the ending of Interstellar. I'm so mad about it still. <laughs> Every episode, we should just talk about the ending of Interstellar. <laughs> Higher dimensional aliens that live behind the bookshelf in your house, yeah. weirdly. <clears throat> yeah, but it's weird because it goes up and down and side to side. Of all the houses it could be, it happened to be his. So lucky. Uh, I guess what I was saying is that none of these things, can, there's no reason to think that there's some scientific basis for it. A lot of these fantastic premises, they're driven by a desire that this could happen someday. Yeah. What, you know, Jules Verne is like, what if we had a submersible boat? Right. What a if, submersible boat. What if there were a flying machine, sacre bleu, you know? And, and it's driven by the idea that Someday this will happen, and what would that be like? You know, you're envisioning it. And here, we're, it's a fun hypothetical. What would I do if I were in my kid's body? What if my mother was in my body? What, well, we don't believe it's going to happen. We know it's a uh, bunk. So what are some comparable literary devices that are not exactly wish fulfillment, but similarly like, ah, this will never happen, but wouldn't this be a funny thing to write a story about? All this monkey's paw, three wishes stuff. You right. know, any, anybody that will grant you wishes. Probably thousands of years ago, people believed there might be a little man living in the roots of that tree who would grant me wishes. But after decades of not encountering him, they finally decided, you know what? What if there is no little man? I guess we do it constantly, right? What What would your superpower be? What, would you be invisible or fly if you had a choice? Like it's a con we do it all the time. I wonder what what that says, or or what the root of that desire to. I often wonder because often, typically, these movies are comedies. You, right. can, you can count on one hand the number of body swap movies where it's used for scary <laughs> effects. It's a nightmare. <laughs> which is probably more accurate. I mean, if I body swapped with my father right now, it would totally be a nightmare. <laughs> well, only because he's, he's been, been dead for 10 years. Did you bury or cremate your father? He was cremated. Yeah. Oh, well, that would be even weirder. Well, it's terrible because- Which, which blob of ash are you in? Well, that's the thing. We, uh, we, it was difficult at the time. He had a cemetery plot, but his wishes were that his ashes be sprinkled over- the top of Mount Susitna in Alaska, and he wanted some of his ashes uh, sprinkled over Mount Alieska, and he wanted some put in the center of Lake Washington Whoa. where he used to swim. High maintenance. He wanted himself, you know, dispersed. He really wanted you to go do a lot of work. Yeah, he did. Oh, there was also, there's a tree that his grandfather, they buried his grandfather under in Volunteer Park, and he wanted some of his ashes there just so for some, I don't know, some consistency throughout life. This is like the person where when you pet sit for them, they have like eight pages of numbered instructions. Yeah, he charged me with all these duties. And of course- And of course, you just left him on your dining room table yeah, for- be, uh, being my father's son, I was like, yeah, I'll get to that. And so my dad currently resides under my piano. Oh, uh, he, I was just joking. We pass him every day on our there way- There should be a body swap <laughs> comedy- so that you can see the error of your ways. Yeah, so I live in a in an urn under my own piano while my dad wanders around well, my this, house trying to figure out why he's back. This body swap comedy would be a good deal for him, honestly. Yeah, I guess. If he's had to be under your piano with all the globes. Where he's back in my body, still had, still was hale and hearty and could go back to causing trouble in the world. My dad would be thrilled. Yeah, there's, it's never usually a dead person, although often there is an age difference. That's typically a big part of the plot. And... So where is the... You, you asked about the literary antecedents of this. It comes from a couple... I mean, the fact that these are always comedies, I was going to say, means to me that we've kind of exhausted the comic potential of real life <laughs> and we have to invent these increasingly Baroque and hypothetical things to laugh at. Uh -huh. Like we've thought about everything else now in our culturally dense time. So just to sustain conversation, we have to have things like, would you rather be a bug 
with the coloring of a zebra or a zebra with the coloring of a bug or, you know, just these kind of lame stoner conversations right. that, that are the foundation of society now. So what is the er text? Is this body swap thing a thing where you, where it just, it has always existed. It's a natural thing for our minds to conceive or was there a font? I'm glad you asked. John, hmm. uh, it's one of my jobs here. <laughs> <laughs> the name of this, uh, entry in the omnibus vice versa is actually an 1881 novel. Now let, wait, let's stop there. Vice versa or vice versa. Oh, um, I say vice versa. Do you say vice versa? I say vice versa, which I think is how <laughs> Caesar would have said it. I mean, I think when, when, when I say vice versa. versa, I'm trying to sound fancy because I know it's a Victorian English novel and that's probably how they would have said it. But it's true that in conversation today, I say vice versa like 110% of the time. Right. Do you ever say vice versa? I do not. Vice versa. It no. seems like that seems closer to how the Latin would be, but of course it's not. It would be like vice or something. Yeah, right. But uh, let's say, what, are you okay with calling the book vice versa? Yeah, let's say vice versa. That's how we'll the, tell the book apart from the... From the movies or from the <laughs> idea. Yeah, that's how we'll tell it apart from the movie vice versa starring... Uh, Is it Jeff Goldblum? Tell me it's Jeff Goldblum. Uh, sort of. Judge Reinhold. Oh, made, Judge Reinhold. The made for TV Jeff Goldblum. This book is a 1881 book, Vice Versa. Written by a guy named Thomas Anstey Guthrie. 1881. These are the dawning years of science fiction. That's right. And there are some antecedents. He did not invent the idea of what if my consciousness was in somebody else's mind. There's a horror story by Mary Shelley that uses that idea. There's kind of a French romantic uh, fantastique kind of thing by Théophile Gautier that uses the same idea. And there's a couple of Gilbert and, well, not Gilbert and Sullivan. There's a couple of W.S. Gilbert one-act operettas that he wrote with Frederick Clay, the guy who would later introduce him to Sullivan, hmm. so his first composer collaborator, that both have some kind of hilarious fish out of water body swap premise. But that would have been 20th century. Uh, no, I think both of, because those predate Gilbert and Sullivan's works, I think those are also kind of mid to late oh. Victorian. Mm -hmm. And you can see the uh, antecedents for this even older than that. I mean, the idea that a situation is funny if you reverse it I mean, that's kind of the basis of every Gilbert and Sullivan opera, this idea that topsy-turvydom is funny. You know, if somebody's, if two people hate each other, what if they were in love? Right. Hilarious. Well, it's the premise of Omnibus. <laughs> A conversation that could be interesting, but what if it wasn't? Like in medieval times, there would always be a feast of fools once a year that came from the Roman Saturnalia, where it would just be hilarious that you'd do things opposite. You'd take some normal uh, village idiot kid and you'd, Make him the, make yeah. him the, the or, mayor of the town. Or gain him the bishop or yeah. the lord of misrule or whatever. Right. And you would, uh, you know, do something, put human clothes on pigs and, you know, and everybody, men could actually wear women's clothing, you know, stuff that would otherwise be taboo. You know, you kind of had one day a year to have this outlet. And I think the church and the government were both like, well, if we let them be all depraved today, they'll just settle down and harvest the crops tomorrow. Sure. Well, and then there's a, I guess... I guess we see a lot of stories where the prince dons regular clothes and goes down into That's the That's the other tradition. King disguised as commoner. Right. We see Harun al-Rashid do it in the Arabian Nights. Prince Hal does it in Henry V the night before the battle. And it's funny because he can be like, hey, what do you think of the king? And some of them can be like, ah, he drinks too much. And the other one will be like, no, he's good now. It happens in the Robin Hood legends, right? Uh, you know, a mysterious traveler turns out to be King Richard back from the Crusades. 
And that kind of all comes to a head at the year before um, Thomas Anstey Guthrie writes Vice Versa. Mark Twain has one of his biggest hits, The Prince and the Pauper, where it's not just a king disguised as a commoner. He's like, wait, what if there's also simultaneously a commoner commoner disguised disguised as as a king? king. You know, it's an odd twist that there would be two identical looking people who happen to meet each other and think it would be fun to switch hats. But that's kind of the first body swap right there um, because, you know, both people get the fish out of water experience. And because they're twins anyway, it's not that relevant. They're not in the same body. Everyone else thinks there is. And if you go back even further, I mean, the idea of a metamorphosis of changing bodies, that goes back to, you know, pretty much every Greek myth. Right. A god turning into a whatever, a, sure. a cow so a he can horse. have sex yeah. or a nymph turning into a tree so she doesn't have to have sex. If you were going to turn into something to have sex, I don't know if a cow would be my first choice. Uh, that's uh, why you're not Zeus. Hmm. Zeus saw Europa and he was like, uh, if I turn into a bull, she'll be like, oh, look at this bull, which I don't think is how girls react to bulls, but whatever. I don't know. And then, but, a, but a bull and a cow are different things, you're right? right? I think I, I if, meant a if, cattle. If, if you said turn into a bull, I would have, yeah, had, had a different reaction. So when I said a cow, you mean a fe- you thought I meant a female cow? Well, that because is of what your a cow co- is. your correct <laughs> agricultural knowledge. A kine? We don't have, really have a word for uh, a gender neutral word for cattle. I guess cattle. A singular cattle. A yeah, a cattle. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite of like an udder of cows or whatever, where you actually don't have a good singular word. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout uh but there's uh so ovid you know wrote a whole book about people changing into trees and cows and whatnot the metamorphoses right and the idea that's often central to these body swap comedies that you're actually going to see from another's eyes and really walk in their moccasins, that's something you see in myths as well. Um, do you know the story of the blind prophet Tiresias, John? No. Tell me more. <laughs> how, well, did, how did I escape the blind prophet Tiresias? The blind prophet Tiresias shows up in a lot of myths doing his prophecy shtick. But there's a myth that's specifically about him, which is that one day... He uh, was walking along and saw two snakes doing it. This is before he was blind. Mm, he must, because he saw them. He encountered two snakes doing it, and, <laughs> and, and he thought, is this an elephant? That's a fair point. <laughs> I like how you're Encyclopedia Brown, and you're like, ah, but you said he saw it. Therefore, Bugs Meanie. No, that's true. This he is heard it he's and blind. could discern what it was. Ah. What is that rustling? Wait, <laughs> two snakes doing it. I hear horny snakes. Two no. snakes doing it is uh, was my Indian name. <laughs> Why you ask? Two snakes doing it. 
So uh, Tiresias sees this, and I guess he's a bit of a prude, or maybe he's just like, no one should have to see this or whatever, and he separates them with his stick. And for some reason, this offends the Greek goddess of marriage, Hera, and so she turns him into a woman. I don't know why that's an appropriate punishment for uh, now. You'll for see friend zoning these for <laughs> cock blocking these snakes. But <laughs> now, now you'll see. <laughs> How do you like this? <laughs> well, now you're a woman. So he lives seven years as a woman, and finally is like, well, what if I separated another pair of um, snakes going at it? And he does so, and he turns back into a man. Oh, but that's not the end of the story. Later, Zeus and Hera are having an argument about who gets more pleasure. During the act of love, is it the man or is it the woman? Mm-hmm. And interestingly, each thinks it's the other. Mm-hmm. Um, Zeus is like, you know, I'm out here puffing away, and I you're got having all this a better work to do. Yeah, you're having a better <laughs> time. And Hera's like, Are you kidding me? Like, I'm the one that has to put up with this assault, and you, meanwhile, you get to have your way. So they each think the other one has it really easy. Right. And finally, Hera has an idea. Hey, I turned Tiresias into a woman for seven years. Let's get him up here. So they ask Tiresias, Hey, Tiresias, who really has a better time during sex to the man right. or the woman. This is a very like, heteronormative story, He's like, by the, the way. snakes. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know who loves it? Snakes. <laughs> That's no. why I separated them out of jealousy. No, he tells the truth. He says, it's totally when I was a woman. He's like, of the, of the 12 parts of pleasure, a man knoweth only one or something mm, like mm, that. Mm-hmm. And Zeus gets furious. And, you know, zaps him or blinds him or who knows, sure. whatever. Turns him into a snake. Uh, but, Turns him right. into a grasshopper. But, uh, the, but there is kind of this cultural memory of what we gain, what we could gain if our, if our thoughts were placed inside the opposite. If we're young, an old person. If we're a man, a woman. If we're a child, a parent. And that seems to be where vice versa comes out of. But he mm-hmm. adds the generational gimmick, which has powered all of these subsequent works. Um, Thomas Anstey Guthrie was a law student who actually never practiced. He passed the bar. But then his humor writing immediately took off and he never practiced the law in a day in his life. He wrote and edited for Punch for 30, 40, 50 years. And it was one of the leading humorists of his time. He wrote a story called The Brass Bottle about a genie, which is uh, the basis for I Dream of Genie. It was made into a Tony Randall movie, which in turn inspired the, the TV show. Was there an Air Force colonel involved in his original story? Yeah, Royal Air Force. Oh, Royal Air Force. And there were no airplanes. So... Uh, Right. It's mostly thinking at a desk and planning what will happen. <laughs> thinking at a desk. When there's airplanes. A great comic prem- premise. <laughs> that's kind of what the Air Force, that's, isn't that like 99% of what the Air Force does today? Sit at a desk. Sit at a desk. Thinking about stuff. Plot. More like chair force. Am I right? Um, oh, my hand was poised over the bell and then I, I retracted That's not it. an original pun. That's what the other services say about the Air Force. Oh, do they? The, chair force? I've yeah, never heard the, that. They're the coddled ones that have it so easy. Well, that's true. That's when you need to do a mind swap between an Air Force colonel and a, and a Marine Air and, Force. and get them both in there and be like, you know, and he can be like, of the 10 parts of fighting, the uh, Air Force knoweth only one or whatever. <laughs> Air Force boot camp is just sitting for long hours at a desk. Different kinds of chairs. And then you have 10 hours of sleep. Here's a squeaky chair. <laughs> this one's a little low, so it's annoying. <laughs> what is your major malfunction? Uh, vice versa in particular, uh, imagines a kind of a stodgy Victorian businessman who works at, in colonial produce, mm-hmm. which I assume means colonial produce, ransacking India for tea or yeah, sure. Africa for ivory or Absolutely. something. We've talked about the Victorian era before. This is the time when Britain figured out that their form of government was, as you say, capitalism. Right. And that that's their 
Everything. That's what they're, they're going to export. It's their religion, yes. <laughs> it's going to be their... This is how they're going to liberate the oppressed of the world. We all have... So they all have vaguely <laughs> defined mercantile jobs, including Paul Bultitude, who's kind of this pompous middle-aged widower who does not understand his son, Dickie. Dick comes to him at the end of the Christmas holiday. You can tell by his name, Dickie is a, you know, pretty callow Yeah, youth. he's, he's going to be a irresponsible playboy type. Right. You can totally see how this is. Even though this is not a trope yet, you can exactly see it. It's kind of the, the dad who's like, <laughs> you need to be serious about your studies. And Dickie's like, I, I want more pocket money. I prefer not to. Yeah, exactly. And he, he really does want, you know, I don't want to go back to school. You know, you're sending me to Crichton House, this awful boarding school run by Dr. Grimstone. And uh, I have a bad time. And you know, my allowance is too low. You don't understand me. And uh, both of these like, nonsense, I went to Crichton House myself, you know, uh, you know, like he thinks this is exactly the kind of suffering his son needs. He needs to be, you know, have cold water poured on him at night. And he has no idea how much ascots cost. <laughs> right. <laughs> he, do he doesn't know what kind of like untoward sexual practices they're getting up to at these places now. This sounds like the, uh, the recent episodic television show, The Queen. Right, Prince Philip the does the or the crown. That's right. The Prince Philip does this very thing to Charles, Prince Charles. Yeah, he makes him go to this, and this happened in real life. He made Prince Charles go to the awful boarding school where where he fit in perfectly. And Charles, as a sensitive boy who never had the love from his mother that he yearned for, he kept just being thrown the, down a well. <laughs> you're right, just repeatedly <laughs> thrown down a well. There's a lot of mud, right? He doesn't want to yeah. run in the mud king's mud relay or whatever they have right he's asthmatic and he's sensitive and and he doesn't know that he can use his giant ears to fly yet which will one day make him the hero of the circus right he'll he'll rescue his mother from her <laughs> from her place in that cage remember they've chained her up <laughs> i i showed dumbo to my daughter like two years ago thinking like oh here's one of these cartoons from my childhood i'm going to introduce my daughter to my culture and from the very beginning, Dumbo is absolutely like a vicious, vicious tragedy through the entire, through the, you know, leaving alone the, the racist crows. It's, it's so, just like, it's so visceral that, you know, you're pulled from your mother and literally, she is, yeah. and she's chained up in the saddest possible place, a, a, a abandoned circus car. And you watch her pull away and everyone is like trumpeting their agony. It's awful. They can, all they can do is like barely tap trunks. I wouldn't subject Dumbo on a room full of 40-year-olds. And sadistic clowns are, uh, hmm. are ruining his life. It's very, you, like Tim Burton is remaking it in our time. Is he? Yeah, and you can see why we need a goth Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so Dick does not want to go back to school, and his father is like, well, of course you are, and you, know, you don't know how good you have it, you <laughs> young people. <laughs> ooh, 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 his walrus mustache quivering. And by a strange coincidence, they, uh, he has a, a kind of a playboy brother-in-law named Uncle Marmaduke who has traveled the world wow. and has sent them an Indian stone of mysterious provenance. Uncle Marmaduke. Uncle Marmaduke has sent them the Garuda stone, which has no doubt been lifted from some temple. It's probably the, the village probably has a terrible famine now, like in Temple of Doom, because Uncle Marmaduke stole the, the Garuda stone. That, that was the worships. one thing that was keeping the rains coming. <laughs> right. But it also has a second property, which as you, as you know, if you've seen any of these movies, it will immediately grant wishes or swap consciousness. A funny thing about these movies is there's always some very specific, but totally crazy and implausible way in which the consciousness swap happens in, let me run through them in, uh, like father, like son, Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron switch because there's a native American potion in a hot sauce bottle. Ah, uh, Tabasco sauce, brain transferred syrup. 
course. Um, Any explanation of how it got there? Yes. In <laughs> Prelude to a Kiss, the play, uh, an old man kisses a bride on her wedding day and they switch consciousnesses. Oh, just Which through. is funny. I've, I feel like I've kissed a bride on her wedding day, including mine. Maybe you didn't kiss her the right way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this old man knows some technique. In Vice Versa with Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage, a semi-remake of this novel from the 80s. The... the, the Anstey's story has been filmed and, and adapted for the stage multiple times. Uh, it's a magical skull from Thailand, of course. Mm -hmm. In 18 Again with George Burns and Charlie Schlatter, remember him? It's a car accident. <laughs> 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 they crash their cars into each other. And, and their souls keep going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> they come out of the, of the crash test dummies and go right into the <laughs> other head. In The Hot Chick, where Rob Schneider switches places with Rachel McAdams, it's kind of a mystery. They don't know what it is. But How we, did the, I miss that? We, the audience, knows it's, in a, it's a cheerleader, small-time, gross hood who switch. Oh, I see. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's a clueless or a mean girl scenario if Rob Schneider was in it more. Right. Um, well, and this, and it really, like, uh, suggests the question, who enjoys sex better? Does Rob Schneider ever have sex in the, in the form of the cheerleader? Let me take a, uh, yeah, let me take a detour from my detour to point out that sex is always kind of an iffy, squicky kind of side note in sure. these. Do you remember in the Jodie Foster Freaky Friday how the dad is kind of like leering at his own daughter in the whole movie? I don't remember that. Well, I mean, you leap Bl into your mom's body and then John Astin's like, oh, honey, you're looking very spry today. Oh, or, of course. You know. And what a total nightmare scenario for the daughter who thought that she was having fun like shopping and driving around and, then and it's she like, realizes if this doesn't turn around by Saturday night oh no I'm going to bed with daddy oh no this is terrible it's awful and I then, hadn't thought this through at all and then uh, Jodie Foster the daughter hops into Barbara Harris's body and uh, has to hang out with this neighbor boy who thinks he's having his Mrs. Robinson moment like Annabelle never, Annabelle, it's Jimmy Olsen uh, right. from Superman. And, uh, uh, Annabelle never pays attention to me, Mrs. Andrews, but you're so nice just letting me hang out here, you know? So you get into odd territory very quickly. And I guarantee, I have not seen the Rob Schneider, Rachel McAdams movie, but I guarantee there's a scene where, you know, sure. he looks down his shirt and gasps, or she looks down her pajama bottom and gasps. Gasps in dismay. Gasps in dismay, right? <laughs> well, what are you saying about Rob Schneider? Uh, I just, I had to get it in there. <laughs> So did he. Uh, there's a oh. there's a uh, anime, a recent anime called Your Name, which is actually a very smart body swap drama. It's a teenage boy and a teenage girl. It's a, it's more of a city mouse, country mouse thing. They're the same generation, but each one, you know, the one wants to live in the city. The one wishes he could get out of the hustle and bustle of Tokyo. And every morning when he wakes up in her body, like he immediately just like feels up his chest for sure. like 20 minutes. Well, it is an anime. It's the only realistic treatment <laughs> of this phenomenon. Okay. So the change, uh, sorry. In, uh, the is it hot a chick, hentai? <laughs> it's actually very sweet, except for, it's just very realistic about what a Japanese boy would do right. if he were popped into that situation. And then, you know, probably any culture. Except for Victorian England. Except for Victorian England. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, no, you were running down or a Southern list. Southern Baptists. Right. Uh, in the hot chick, it's uh, a mystery what uh, the device, the gimmick has been. They think it might be this Wiccan girl in their class, which is kind of mean. Yeah. It, we know that it's some enchanted earrings from ancient Egypt, but we have to watch 
poor Rob Schneider and Rachel McAdams try to figure it out. The enchanted earrings. It's like the one ring. They keep like falling to the bottom of a stream and then someone finds them. Yeah. And it's always an ancient culture. Like, oh yeah, of course in ancient, the, the uh, Lakota Sioux or the Thai or the Indians, of course they knew how to swap brains. They were just doing that all the time. Sure. They enchanted skulls on the reg. It's been lost to us. Uh, have you seen the Freaky Friday remake with uh, remake with Jamie Curtis and uh, Lindsay Lohan? I think that I saw snippets of it and I don't remember how. I think it was on cable TV or something and I and I surfed past it and watched it for a little while. I think it was the last movie I ever saw to drive in. Interestingly, not that interesting, actually. Now that no, I think about I it. I think it's fairly interesting. I miss drive-ins. In that movie, you may recall, it's a magic fortune cookie. Oh, I didn't recall that. <laughs> There's a spell in a fortune cookie. I don't know why. Well, because the inscrutable Asiatics. See, we do get into this kind of Orientalist. As recently as 2003, it was okay to say, hey, Chinese restaurants might swap your brain because they're sure. weird Asians. And sure. That's not okay. Enchanted skulls. In 2011, in the changeup, Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman, uh, they have a little fun with the premise. Those two are peeing in the same fountain when lightning strikes. Uh-huh. So okay, it, so science. It implies that, yeah, science. <laughs> It implies that your consciousness can get swapped through your urethra, right. I guess. And through a fountain, right? It would, it would go out through your pee, out through your pee hole. Right. Down Do you worry about that every time you pee, that the sewer is going to steal your soul? When I was a kid, I definitely didn't like peeing in a common urinal because I felt like it was something was going to come back up my pee. <laughs> I first realized this mandrake during the physical act of love. Well, and this is why I always, I still to this day, well, I won't use a. I don't a, like when they have the trough. A, well, I, and I won't use a urinal or a, uh, or a toilet that has been pre-used. I always pre-flush. Oh, like if there's pee in the bowl? Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't flush? Well, that's the thing. Why would you do that? I it's, mean, I have kids, so I have never, I have not peed in a clean bowl in, in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but most people shouldn't have to put up with that. And then most recently, 2016, the anime I mentioned, there's a lot of vague rigmarole revolving around a series of cometary impacts with a 1,200-year uh, period uh -huh. and uh, a ritual Japanese shrine that mm -hmm. has rice wine made with saliva. And the combination of those two things is enough to somehow affect the, um, the boob-grabbing consciousness. Sure, swap. again, the, the, the East again. contains all the mysteries. Except that one's okay because they're saying it about ourselves. They, they're like, yes, we do. Our Shinto shrines do indeed have the secret to oh, I see. consciousness swapping. You never get one where it's just like, oh, this is just a rite of the Church of England. Right. <laughs> From now on, in a more sensitive era, I think we should just be limited to our own sure. culture. Like, Every time a bishop put, picks up that mace. I went to mass and suddenly I jumped into my sister's body. Um, so in this case, it's the Garuda Stone. And uh, vice versa is interesting because it is not a soul transference comedy. It is literally a body swap comedy. Now explain the difference between soul transference and body swapping, because I, okay. I, I, from the outside, I don't know if I would be able to, to tell the difference. Well, from the outside, that's exactly where you can tell because in soul transference, we see, uh, like I was saying, Jodie Foster's body, Jodie Foster's, jeez, <laughs> Mrs. Andrews's brain suddenly finds herself in her daughter's body at the diner, right? right? Okay. So she has moved in space. Right. Like by where she is, she realizes that she has switched consciousnesses. Right. Annabelle's friends sitting there were not like, hey, you were your mom and now you're you or vice versa. Like I to see. them, it's the same. Sure. Whereas Mrs. Andrews is sitting at home, Jodie Foster said suddenly appears in her brain. And it's because they said, boy, I wish you could be me for just one day. So souls make the, make the journey. Right. Whereas in vice versa, 
the son holding the stone says, I wish I could just be an adult. You have it easy. And suddenly he is his dad. And interestingly, his dad is still his dad. Oh. Uh, uh-huh. So he's wherever he was standing, if someone was in the room with him, he would have changed corporeally into his father. Yes. Uh-huh. And then there's a second wish. Um, Where his father makes the wish? The father's like. But the father's not holding the stone. Oh, no, wait. It's the other way around. The father, the father holds the stone. Everybody gets one wish. The father holds the stone first and wishes, I wish I could be back at Crichton House. Those were my salad days. I wish I was young again. Boop, he turns into the son. Now there's two sons. He doesn't even realize that he is, you know, probably a hundred pounds lighter. He, hasn't, he doesn't look down. I guess he's wearing the same clothes. It's not, the clothing aspect is never made clear. Yeah. But it's not till his son says, you look like me, look in a mirror, that he realizes what's going on. And at that point, the son is like, oh, I can get up to some mischief. And he grabs the stone and says, well, I wish I looked like like the my my squire. What do you call your dad? The old man, the gaffer. Well, I don't know what they say. Sure. Um, and he turns into Mr. Bultitude. Uh-huh. And it's essentially the Freaky Friday gimmick where one does get trundled off to school. Well, then what happens to the stone? Does it slip out of their hands and down a sewer grate or something? They could just be doing this all day. You can only wish once, oh. I believe, because in the, in the end, spoilers, one of the other kids, he's got, uh, Dickie has some younger siblings because the dad's a widower. He has to get one of the kids to make a wish that, you know, Papa and uh, Dickie are back in, uh, everything's as it was. Boy, then that kid squanders his wish. Exactly. He could have been the prime minister of England. That kid could have, and that young boy that nobody loved (laughs) turned out to be John Major. So he gets trundled off to school. and, And the interesting thing about vice versa is that it's entirely from the point of view of the adult. We're always seeing Mr. Bultitude in Dickie's body at the awful boarding school. We never get to see Dickie go traipse around town spending all his money. Uh, we hear secondhand late in the book, the son comes to visit in the father's body and says, everything's great. I'm having parties. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've got all the Spending your money. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he later hears that uh, yeah, Mr. Bultitude, formerly of such a great mercantile house, really has been making some odd decisions. He just leaves everything to his clerk and... Uh, and goes and flies kites in the park and, you know, uh, he wants, his big plan is he wants to have a big children's party, which is a little odd since he's a teenager, well, I guess. people weren't, mo- weren't monitored quite as carefully then. I guess that's the Victorian equivalent of a kegger. Hey, a we got, party. we got dad's house. Let's have a massive entertainment <laughs> for children. <laughs> I think we'll a, lot, a, conjurer. a lot of these stories maintain their, uh, sort of palatableness by not really getting into what people would actually do in these situations. That's exactly right. A Victorian man, uh, been single for a long time. Suddenly back in a young man's body. Yeah. Or the other way around a teenage boy who's suddenly in the body of a single Victorian man who probably has tons of money. Yeah. And probably kills prostitutes. I I don't think either one of them would just like, I don't, first of all, I don't think the father would subject himself to the privations of a like youth and a school anymore. He'd be like, <laughs> screw this. I'm going to America. Well, it's all, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go fight cowboys and red Indians. That's right. Uh, there's a series of plot things that keep him from, you know, he wants to not go back to the school, but he's trundled into a coach and he can't say anything. He wants to tell the headmaster, but then he's afraid he won't be believed and then blah, blah, blah. Right. And he, you know, he does find out that school is awful. Um, uh, but it's all from the the adults' point of view. And we kind of think of these as children's entertainments. You know, there's always, there's six of these on Disney Channel today, probably. Right. 
because the fun is, Ooh, what would I do if I were mommy or daddy? Right. Well, and, and now, nowadays they're just sitting at a computer and, and are like <laughs> yeah. Tron absorbed. It's exactly the same either way. Like <laughs> instead of staring at my phone, texting with my awful friends, I'm going to stare at my phone and text with my awful adult friend. <laughs> like there's no, it's a non-event now if you body swap. But the funny thing about the original novel uh, of Freaky Friday, have you read the book? No. It's by Mary Rogers, the, the daughter of composer Richard Rogers. Huh. Um, Rogers of, of Hammerstein fame. She is probably best known for her Broadway work. She wrote the, I think, book and score to Once Upon a Mattress. Oh. Do you know this play? No. I mean, I've heard the name. Carol Burnett's um, big Broadway moment. It's the, uh, I think the, the premise, we did it in uh, high school. The premise is that what if the princess and the pea, but Were everyone- switched. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the princess is suddenly under all these mattresses. <laughs> I can't breathe. And the pee is like, and she, oh, and she immediately dies. Finally. She can't breathe. Just like if you were in your dad's urn, you would right. immediately die. Probably. I would just be died. Uh, no, this is princess and the pee, but horny. Uh, nobody in the kingdom can get married until the prince gets married off. So the whole kingdom wants the prince to marry anybody. And so when this awful, so they can all get married. So the they, ultimate goal of a young person. <laughs> Of that time, <laughs> as was the style at the time. Carol Burnett is some kind of awful, uncouth swamp princess, but everyone conspires to convince the the queen that she is a worthy match. So they conspire to like hide all kinds of stuff under the mattress, I think. Anyway, I just gave away the ending of Once Upon a Mattress. Anyway, Mary Rogers, kind of famous, well-known Broadway. In her novel, it's essentially the same as the movie. It's a day at home versus a day at school, but we only follow the daughter's adventures at home. This one's from the child's point of view mm -hmm. in the adult body. And it really is like, boy, I think mom just has it easy watching soaps and eating bonbons. But instead, she's got all these oh, crazy errands to, to run. Store and her, show, her kind of chauvinist husband tells her at the last minute that the boss is coming over. Oh, so she's got to put together a dinner party. You know, there's a lot of logistics in these works of... Uh, you know, just how you would do the things you don't know how to do. Right. Oh, the, all the laughs that you would get trying to make a roast if you were a 14-year-old girl. And to me, this kind of takes away from the universality of the other person's moccasins conceit. Right. Because most of the time is not spent communing and, and sympathizing with your other. It's really more about, but I don't know how to play field hockey. Or, right. wait, I've got to, like in uh, Vice Versa, you know, he hardly ever goes to class. But, you know, if he did, he you know, he doesn't speak Greek or Latin or anything. And everyone would know he was terrible. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. You know, I, I, our assumption or my assumption would be that if you were a young person suddenly transported into your mother's body with all of her powers, 
you would say, make your own roast and get in the car and go out to a wine bar or whatever. But I imagine now thinking about it, that the teenager wouldn't even conceive of those options and would feel very constrained to maintain order. You're not used to having that kind of autonomy. Even as a teenager who craves it, you never think, wait, I can do anything today. What do I do? And the mother similarly would kind of, would be conscious of her daughter's reputation and conscious of her daughter's obligations socially and wouldn't just say, you know, screw this. I'm going to, I know how to drive. I'm going to steal a Corvette and, and go to Las Vegas. I think you would chafe at the kind of the condescending way that adults treat kids. That's often the takeaway of these. Right. Because, you know, eventually we synthesize the vice versa idea. Let's follow the adult having to deal with boarding school and the Freaky Friday version. Let's follow the child having to deal with adult life. And you could actually kind of bridge the generation gap by showing both sides. It's kind of odd that nobody did it until... Freaky Friday 2003. Yeah. Or no, I guess the the Jodie Foster movie cuts back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it does. We see the mom at home and the, the daughter at school, or, or I guess vice versa. Vice versa. Vice versa by the time we get to 1978 um, or six. But the book the is entirely from the adult point of view, and it's even subtitled A Lesson to Fathers. Mm-hmm. It's one of these, uh, you know, because in the Victorian era, all literature, even light or children's literature, was supposed to be morally instructive. Well, and uh, there w- there didn't exist the concept of a teenager. So a, right. a child wasn't regarded as especially interesting, right? Right, and certainly not somebody whose opinions you would have to listen to. Right. And that is kind of is the twist of the book. He sees that actually he he is, uh, his son is not wrong about how awful the headmaster is and how awful the food is at this place. He's kind of been remembering it with rose-colored nostalgic glasses. Sure, you can't have any pudding if you don't eat your meat. There's very there's very graphic descriptions of awful suet puddings that he, people have to eat. Um, and he also realizes that he's totally socially out of his depth. Like everybody immediately, his son was the most popular boy at school. And once he's been possessed by his dad for a week, everybody hates him. He's awful. <laughs> he screws up his son's little budding romance with the headmaster's daughter. All the other kids think he's a sneak and a coward and a tattletale. Um, because he is, he, he identifies with the adults as right. you or I would, if we were dropped into a high school, right. we wouldn't want to hang out with these awful little people. Hey, you stop that at behavior immediately. <laughs> and it really reminds me that, uh, I was hoping it would be good. I read it recently. Yeah. And you know, Alice in Wonderland came out of the Victorian era and it's still a classic today. Have you read it recently? I like it. Yeah. And it, it, it it's because it tweaks the, the kind of the conventions of the instructive Victorian novel. You know, Alice tries to recite How Doth the Little Busy Bee, you know, these these dumb nursery poems. And instead, they're all kind of funny, wacky, absurdist nonsense stuff that really holds up pretty well today. But it turns out that all these other light entertainments of that period are not super funny. I was hoping it would be good. I like um, books like Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome, Diary of a Nobody by George Grossmith, kind of the beginning of middle-class comedy, people having funny adventures, just trying to you know, put new windows on their house or, mm-hmm. or go for a picnic in the country or, you know, kind of regular everyday stuff that's identified. It's kind of the beginning of comedy we can identify with. We see this a lot. You know, the, uh, Guthrie would have been a very popular humorist in his time, but his work has not survived to the present day. There's a very short Whereas shelf Twain, life on you know, comedy. Twain remains an American treasure. I wrote about this in my book about comedy, that the modern comedy voice really is the American one. You know, some of these American uh, monologists would go to London and do their kind of uh, homespun country fried thing where they'd be like, 
Well, I was going up the river. And just kind of tall tale stuff, like, uh, uh, this is a mountain. I commend your eyes to the top of it. Or this here is a horse. It took me many attempts before I was able to, uh, you, you know, just kind of this kind of stuff. And yeah, Paul L- Bunyan. London audiences just could not get enough of this very direct voice because, you know, they would have said it with a, a thousand words. Um, and it's the kind of book where, you know, here, here's a just a sample of the writing of vice versa. Beginning of chapter nine. They all start with a quote from Shakespeare, by the way. If it were not that it was so absolutely essential to the interest of this story, I think I should almost prefer to draw a veil over the sufferings of Mr. Bultitude during the rest of that unhappy week at Crichton House, but it would only be false delicacy to do so. Things went worse and worse with him. The real Dick, in his most objectionable moods, could never have contrived to render himself one quarter so disliked and suspected as his substitute was by the whole school, masters and boys. What a yarn. It just seems... Yeah, it seems like uh, the... The varieties of religious experience. It seems musty. Yeah, it might as well be the decline and fall of the Roman Empire for how much it it grabs you. And I was sorry to see that. I was hoping it would hold up. But um, Compared to a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Sure, where the, at least the dialogue is still lively. It kind of reminded me that, you know, Alice in Wonderland of that same time period is a book written by someone who understands children. And most children's literature, or most literature back then, even for children, didn't particularly care what the inner world of a child was like. This really is a lesson for fathers. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see this today, honestly, this is kind of a tangent, but I hope you'll allow it. I kind of get annoyed today watching Pixar movies with my kids because these guys clearly think they have touched the child mind and they're really just making movies for emotional dads. Yeah, Like all the Pixar movies are about what happens when your kids grow up and how sad that is, you know? Yeah, uh, to, to to watch the beginning of Up as an eight-year-old, right. you're like, hey, man, I don't know why everyone, all the grown-ups are crying. Uh, it makes no sense to me. Uh, Toy Story is about, you know, how... The Holocaust. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Toy Story 3. <laughs> Toy Story 3 is about the Holocaust. Spoiler alert. Toy Story 2 is kind of about, you know, separation and, you know, they're eventually going to grow up and go to college and leave you. I guess that's all the Toy Story movies. And essentially all the Pixar movies are like, Either someday they will leave you or like the Cars movies. Things used to be better. Right. Um, it really is like Fox News as an animation studio. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, my daughter growing up in my home, uh, things used to be better is one of the major <laughs> literary uh, <laughs> ideas of her whole childhood. She says it all the time like, oh, boy, traffic in this town. Things have really gone gone downhill. Let me guess. The perfect era for her somehow by a strange coincidence is your youth. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> oh, Seattle in 1989. Um, so I've already gone through kind of the list of uh, modern day, latter day movies that came out of. Uh, of you like saying latter day, don't you? Pen. You like just slipping that into conversation. Oh, because of uh, the Latter Day Saints. Yeah, the new name. What would you say? The new old name. What would you say instead of Latter Day? Uh, Subsequent. Yeah. Right. Present, Church of Jesus Christ times. of Subsequent Saints. <laughs> <laughs> really trips off the tongue. And a lot of these movies came out, I don't know if you remember this, during like one six-month stretch in the late 80s. In October of 1987, Dudley Moore and Kirk Cameron made their body swap movie. Five months later in March, Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage made Vice Versa. And then the following month, George Burns' 18 Again came out. And it was right around the same time Big came out too, because there's all these adjacent movies where um, there's a switcheroo. Yeah, there's a switcheroo. Some awful chauvinist turns into Ellen Barkin or, uh, Tom Hanks or Jennifer Garner gets younger or, or wait, older, older. 
Tom Hanks oh. and Jennifer Garner get older. Uh, Matthew Perry gets younger. You know, there's this whole kind of movie where, you know, something comic and supernatural happens that's very similar to a body swap, but there's no actual exchange. And it's very interesting to me that all three of those movies came out right at the end of 1987, the beginning of 1988. What yeah. do you think was happening culturally that would explain this weird moment in culture? Well, you see it enough with movies that it might be coincidence, right? You know, two asteroid hitting the earth movies are in development and both studios just race to get theirs out first or right. two biopics about Truman Capote or two CGI movies about bugs or about an anthill. You know, it, it, but it, eight it happens switcheroo over over. movies that all come out within a year. All these switcheroo movies. So my theory is that, uh, in the late eighties, the boomers are having their kids but they still see themselves as the protagonists of reality. Right. The you know, young, we, the young people who saved the world right. during the sixties. We are, but we're the protagonists of America. We arbitrated cool. And they're kind of shocked at suddenly being on the other end and realizing, wait, am I the fuddy duddy? Right. Am I the dad in Bye Bye Birdie now? Just because I don't like the beastie boys. I had this experience in the late eighties because there was a resurgence, a brief resurgence of sixties culture like psychedelia and uh, the Doors movie came out. There was that movie. Or there were also several movies about what it was like to be a young person in the '60s. Clearly it, produced by right. It was forty-year-old yeah. Hollywood producers. But but as an eighteen-year-old, I got suckered in like a lot of people did to thinking that. Crosby, Stills, and Nash was also the soundtrack to our generation. <laughs> it was just prior to kind of the alternative. Uh, sure, all those movies came out, well. Big Chill, all those movies that had the 60s soundtrack. Right. And you thought... You were like, oh, the California Raisins represent me. <laughs> so I guess this movie appeals to that. Like, uh, suddenly there's a real generation gap, and it's the people who are used to being the young, cool ones who are having to come to grips with it. Right. And what a hilarious premise that you would suddenly be Fred Savage in what I can only assume were large-legged raver pants. So it's relatable both <laughs> ways because these are people who do see themselves as both a teenager and a dad. Right. And Oh, sure. They're try they get back into the kid's body and right. they're like, I can skateboard. Right. Or yeah. can I? Like some, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. That's kind of a, a writing choice you have to make. Like right. should Jodie Foster's mom be a really good touch typist? Should mm -hmm. she be a good field hockey player? Typically they screw up, but, um, the other reason these movies keep getting made, of course, is it's an acting challenge. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, it's like the movie Face Off, which came 10 years later. Oh, which, that's, that's a very limited form of the body swap comedy. Right, but a strange one. But it gave Nicolas Cage and John Travolta both lots of opportunity to uh, like comically use their faces and bodies. And to kind of be the other, right? Right. Because as an actor- In a sinister you, way. Right. And that's, a, that's an interesting movie, right? Nick, Nick Cage, one of the gonzoest actors of his generation, and John Travolta, maybe one of the most limited ones. And John Travolta has to, like, make his face all gonzo. And, and be all like, <sighs> Nicolas Cage has to, like, calm his, calm his action down. And uh, disco dance, probably. Right. No, he doesn't. No. But yeah, actors, if you're an actor, you're kind of always locked into playing, even if you're a very versatile actor, you know, Nick Cage is always going to be playing somebody that looks like Nick Cage at that age. Sure. He's, if you're Al Pacino, you, you're going to yell at some point. Ooh, uh, <laughs> unless there's motion capture, you're not going to be able to play an 11 year old boy or a 30 year old housewife or a very old man. Um, so this is the ultimate challenge. I get to, for a whole movie, Tom Hanks is like, I get to do my acting -y <laughs> idea of what a nine year old boy is like. Or if you're Ellen Barkin in Switch, 
you have to, you know, here's my idea of what an awful guy would, you know, how he would tromp around, but in, but in my beautiful Ellen Barkin body. When I think of a time travel adventure where I go back to being 13 again, I mean, the first thing I would do is buy a bunch of Google, but yeah, or buy a bunch. No Google. in 19, Apple. early in 1980, I'd just buy a bunch of silver bullion and then sell it when it got to be $50. But, uh, this is no, this is your chance. You can actually buy Apple, buy, uh, Oh, sure. Fantastic Four number one. You can do some research. You can do your Gray's Sports Almanac research and see what the biggest money-making Well, you always want to take your iPhone back with you somehow and keep it in a secret box. But the big challenge would be how to mask your sophistication to your parents and friends so that you could continue to kind of live in the, in your world at the time and to go to world history class and listen to like, in 1776 and not just be like, come on. But also socially and, and it does kind of show that all the things we put kids through, you know, they'll they only do it because they don't know any better. Right. You know, like if, if they knew there were options, they would be like, uh, I'm not doing this. We're memorizing the 50 states and capitals. <laughs> it's like, come on. But you'd also have to sit at the dinner table at the end of the night and convince your parents that you suddenly sort of didn't know more than they do about everything. Typically in these books and movies, everyone is terrible at it. That's yeah. the kind of the premise is that that no one is very good. Everybody will keep saying my mom instead of me. And they, you know, won't know how to extricate themselves out of scenarios. You know, they won't be able to cover for not knowing anybody's names. That actually feels pretty true. I think that's probably right. In yeah. some, and sometimes they're able to convince their new peers by maybe knowing something that only, I guess it's not their new, yeah, it's their, it's their, their parents or their kids' peers by knowing something that only dad would know, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But honestly, you or I would never believe it if uh, if one of our friends said they were actually their nine-year-old son, even if he had all the dirt. Well, but every, especially within a family, every night you'd have to sit at the dinner table and look across the table at your other, and you both knew the truth. So you're not just masking it yourself. You, you and, you're in conspiracy. All these things have to keep them separate or the plot immediately breaks down. They would join forces. Right. And that's not funny. Right. Right. So the plot always has to have some madcap series of, uh, I think in the, in the Jamie Lee Curtis one, doesn't, isn't she on a press tour for something? I don't know. Everybody has a very busy day. Oh no, she's planning for her wedding. Um, everybody has an extremely busy day, way too busy to actually address Right. The awful body swap. Even though immediately happening. you would go find your other. And- no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I, I have several appointments. <laughs> I'll take care of this tonight. <laughs> and that concludes Vice Versa. Entry 1393.EP0423. Certificate number 30972 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and that you aren't living in some kind of future, like, soul-swapping time when you just go inhabit whatever body you choose, maybe there are six Futurelings in every cool body and a bunch of, like, empty bodies. Just sitting around unused? Just sort of like in the video game, uh, what's the video game where the little robots just kind of walk around in circles and... You have to shoot them. I mean, that's a lot of video games. That's but, every video game. Uh, not um, not Zaxxon. It was um, Galaga. Not Galaga. No, you're 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 a, a person, and you're trying to save a family. You're trying to go grab the mom and the kid, while these big monster robots kind of just walk random patterns. 
Um, and, but they're always trying to kind of corner you, and if they touch you, you die. Robotron. Robotron. Is thank right? you. Yes. So it's like a Robotron scenario where where all the dumb bodies are just sort of walking in circles. But, but you you but, would really immediately see a world of attractive people walking around and unattractive people just lolling. <laughs> <laughs> all the bodies no one wanted to jump in. Well, it's kind of like being John Malkovich, right? You uh, you inhabit John Malkovich, but John Malkovich is still there. That's more of yeah. That's that's the all of me gimmick where you can jump into someone's body, but you have to share it with. Either yeah, maybe Steve that's Steve Martin or Malkovich. Malkovich. Maybe that's the uh, the experience of futurelings in their future world. They're like, oh my god, I want to listen to this podcast, but my co-sharer hates podcasts. Maybe they've all leaped into your dad's urn. Hmm. All of them. Maybe they're there now. <laughs> Should we go check? <laughs> no. What if some super intelligent <laughs> civilization has evolved in your dad's urn uh, because they're higher dimensional pan traveling tesseract beings? No, I don't want to open it. Not until I'm ready to sprinkle it on Mount Susitna. Is that the order? It has to be Susitna first? No, I don't think so. But, you know, there's some... you live right next to Lake Washington, John. That one would be very easy. I think that there's... I feel an obligation to have a bunch of family members there, too. And that's hard to coordinate everybody like, Hey, why don't you all come to Seattle? We're going to rent a boat and go out into Lake Washington and sprinkle a portion of Dad's ashes. It has to coincide with something. Yeah, you're not a party planner. No. I, I can't really see you sending out that evite. It has to be somebody else's event, and then I, I like co-opt everything. You just show up with the ashes? Yeah. Hey, hey guys. guess what we're doing this afternoon? <laughs> it's fun John with on, some ashes. On our way to the party. Uh, anyway, uh, futurelings, one way that you can body swap is to go on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and pretend to be a funny person that tweets Ken uh, in response to everything he he writes. Twitter replies are so funny to me. Uh, you can find us at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I'm also on Instagram where I'm uh, where I post selfies of myself in the hopes that people will compliment them and say, "Ah, you look amazing." I've noticed, I think, because every time I post a selfie, generally trying to make some comedy joke, you're like, "Oh, this where did I get this shirt?" What's yeah. up with my hair today? Oh, my hair. It's like the Will Wheaton, like, bedhead. Uh, but but there's, a, there's always a segment of the posters that say really complimentary things, like, you're so cute, or oh my God. And I realize, like, that is a social obligation that younger people feel yes. to praise the appearance of people on, on Instagram. And I'm never looking for that, and I'm always embarrassed by people that are like, you're so handsome. What I'm hoping is that people will make some further comedy joke and say like, wow, you look like a... You're ruining the bit. Yeah, right. It's like that Seinfeld joke so about handsome. how uh, instead of saying, God bless you when you sneeze, you should say, you're so good looking. <laughs> Except that became the that bit became the basis of our culture. It that, really is. Really, all you're supposed to do is, is tell your friends how amazing they look. Oh my God, you know? you're so handsome. But it's like a younger person saying that. And I don't, first of all, I don't believe them. And second of all, <laughs> like it's it, it, it creeps me out a little bit. Anyway, don't do that, uh, futurelings. Also, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. I went there yesterday and answered a lot of Ooh, emails. I have not done that. I need to. Do that. Uh, and there were a few interesting ones there for you, Ken, and also a lot of interesting ones for me that you had left for me to, to see. Uh, you can join our Futurelings page on Facebook, which is an increasingly vibrant and off the rails community of lunatics, as far as I can tell. But they're. Like you think they're literally lunatics? 
I mean, there are lunatics on there for sure, but there are also lots and lots of normal people who are being emboldened by the lunatics to let their own private lunacy out. I hope they're all holding it together in real life and they're not just all tweeting at us from, or, you know, posting from some asylum somewhere where they get computers. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, post, you know, they're, they're first of all, obviously very technologically advanced to be able to post on our Facebook page from behind yeah, the bookshelf. If they're from the future. Good job. Uh, you can send us things. We haven't been receiving a ton of mail. I don't uh, think I picked up my mail in a while. It's very difficult it's to fault. put a stamp on things. My daughter wrote a letter to Santa and actually found a real stamp and put it on the envelope and put it in the mailbox. And uh, none of us went out to retrieve it before the mail person came. And the mail person took it and it's gone now. I don't know. It was addressed to Santa at the North Pole. I'm not sure if they actually deliver those to someplace, North Pole, Alaska, or whether the mailman just puts it in the bag of mail that he or she is constantly stealing. Or the, <laughs> they put it in those mailbags they're going to dump out on uh, on the judge if, if the existence of Santa ever comes to trial, like it does in uh, Miracle on 34th Street. There is a Santa Claus in Indiana, but I don't think they send all the mail there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people write there at Christmas to get a, a special holiday postmark, but... Kids must do this all the time. There must be a... a a not insignificant volume of mail that's just addressed to Santa Claus. Do you know what, how it works in Canada? This is great to me. In, in Canadian, uh, the Canadian equivalent of the zip code, it goes letter, number, letter, number, letter, number. They have letters in their zip codes. Right. And so, and they've reserved H0H, 0H0. Oh, ho, ho, ho. As Santa's zip code. So that's how you send a letter. And, you know, if anybody owns the North Pole, it's Canada, right? So... Mm. Yeah, I suppose. They they're, get closest to it. They're geographically close and, and very friendly. They are. Um, they're, they're friendly people. If, well, if they're there was outwardly somebody, friendly. If there was somebody who was going to enter your house and just leave you something, a nice surprise. You'd rather it be a Canadian than a Russian. That sounds like a Canadian <laughs> thing to do. It doesn't particularly sound like a, a Russian would just like crap on your heart or something. <laughs> Come into your house and... <laughs> With a bottle of vodka. Go through your mail. Just defecate on your carpet and leave. Yeah. Um, the, no offense to any futurelings who... And if... If future Earth is ruled by descendants of Russians, we're just kidding. You think they could get it together enough to actually rule the Earth? I mean, depending. If they if they shut down the power grid here in America and it causes <laughs> us all to just wander the Earth like, like uh, mindless automatons. They've come closer than a lot of countries. I will give them that. Considering that they are, in population terms, quite a bit smaller than their influence would suggest. And always wearing tracksuits, less than their influence would suggest. Yeah, well, that's the whole Slavic tracksuit thing. They crouch a lot, too. <laughs> anyway, our, our uh, mailbox is P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, which, when I was a kid, was not actually a town. It was just an idea. Ah, the but, good old days. <laughs> but Shoreline now has been incorporated. We need your daughter here to tell us how great it was when that oh, was unincorporated King County. Back when Shoreline was just a was just a twinkle in our eye. Let's go up to Playland, or whatever it was called. 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, we speak to you from the distant past and from this limited vantage point, we don't know how long our civilization is going to survive. That's why we take the trouble of talking to you for hours on end about Freaky Friday. Uh, we have urgent business like that to conduct. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, we hope to return soon for another entry 
in the omnibus.